Hi and welcome to this month's podcast. Today we are talking about volunteering and in particular we're thinking about who does volunteering and for whom. Here in the UK often when we think about volunteering in international communities we may think about some of the big NGO organisations like Oxfam or of people like gap year students doing their bit for impoverished areas. This dominant status image or model impresses that the local poor or vulnerable recipients benefiting from the goodwill of those from the global north. However, research is showing that this picture should and could be challenged. It's showing how community members are often the ones who come to the aid of others within their own communities. We've seen this recently within the UK with the responses to COVID-19. Initial volunteering responses were facilitated by local communities within their community and often using social media platforms to coordinate this response. So what does this tell us about the nature of volunteering? What does this tell us about how governments respond to different situations? And what are the facilitators and barriers within these volunteering responses? Today, we will explore what this means for practitioners with the help of Chris Malora, who is currently a PhD researcher and research fellow with the UNESCO Chair in Adult Literacy and Learning for Social Change at the University of East Anglia. Hi Chris, thank you for joining us. Maybe you'd like to tell us a bit about your research. Yes, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be to be here. Um, so my, my research looks at the adult learning and literacy dimension of volunteer work, particularly among um, quote unquote vulnerable groups, uh, youth and adults in the Philippines. So it's really looking at first and foremost, why volunteers who are coming from resource poor contexts volunteer? What are some of the motivations around this? But also what are they learning in the process and what kind of learning practices and literacy practices are they engaged with in the process? And part of that is what uh, Natasha uh, was saying earlier about this whole uh, dominant narrative that uh, volunteers from poorer communities are just recipients of development programs. So I'm trying to turn that around and say that, well, there's loads of volunteer activities already existing in these communities. How did you go about researching that? Well, a lot of the inspiration was from my own personal experience in the Philippines. I've, I've worked there as a volunteer and as a development worker for many years before coming to Europe for my studies. And that has always been my observation, that people coming from poorer backgrounds are the ones helping their fellow, um, their neighbors and their friends. Um, in the Philippines, you have a lot of natural disasters. The first person to help you during a typhoon is your neighbor, who are also victims of the same calamity. And I've always been interested in and tried to see, you know, try to study this a little bit more with a learning dimension. And then when I started to look at the, the resources and the literature, then I saw that a lot of this um, a lot of the dominant ways of looking at communities like ours in the Philippines or the communities where I came from is that we're just receiving development programs. And I think there is there is space to challenge that narrative uh, by highlighting what is already happening in these communities and what kind of helping activities already happening, even in the most resource poor contexts. So to conduct this research, I did an 11 month ethnography. So I volunteered in, in two volunteer organizations in the Philippines, one of them as a formal NGO on HIV AIDS and adolescent sexual health. And they involve people living with HIV, people from resource poor households as volunteers. Um, and the other one is more of a social movement. So this is a group of 49 households who decided to gather together 
following an, an eviction from their houses where they've been living for 70 years. So they gathered together to fight for land tenure. So you say that in the course of your experience in the Philippines and in your research, you saw local people helping each other. Mm. And that doesn't get mm. recognised by volunteering organisations. What damage does that do in terms of the local population when they're, they're not recognised? I mean, a lot of this is about, you know, so when we, when we create policies, for instance, or development programs, um, if you have that kind of thinking where communities or poorer communities are always the ones who, who need help, uh, there's that kind of deficit discourse that is very strong. So you're almost always your first answer to that question is what can we give? rather than looking at what is already happening in these communities, what kind of literacies, what kind of resources do they already have um, that we can build upon or systems that they already have that we can build upon rather than creating a new one. So I think that's it's, it's, it's not only damaging to them, but it's also perpetuating this kind of development ecosystem wherein there's always a deficit model that it's always about other people helping communities without looking at the, the wealth of volunteering, the wealth of helping activities already existing in these communities. So it's almost problematic in two ways. There's the patronising angle in terms of we know what's best for you, but mm-hmm. there's also an economic angle because actually if if you are talking to people in the local communities and finding out what's happening, mm-hmm. actually that could prove to be more cost effective than just coming in with a solution that might not be effective. Oh, precisely. And that could also have implications on sustainability. Right. How can we continue the projects that we've already started if we're we're putting a new system rather than building on old ones or pre-existing ones? So that also has implications on whether the project will continue even after the funding or even after the development program would leave. Thinking about that dominant narrative, then that's very much large scale NGOs, people coming in from abroad to take a gap year and and help and that's missing an awful lot of other types of volunteering, that sort of community action side of things. Mm. What kind of volunteering models are there that we're not seeing when we write these policies and these this deficit model? Right. I, I think what we're missing is really this wealth of volunteer activities that are done that are being done locally, being done between families, being done between community members. And um and that is that is a very interesting policy concern, I think, is how we look at volunteering, how we understand volunteering and who volunteers has very strong implications on how we do volunteering programs. And so you're right, a lot of these narratives are missing and it creates this image and perpetuates this image of the global south, for instance, of always needing help. Um, It perpetuates this image of the poor being powerless, right? And, And it kind of perpetuates this whole idea that there's only one way of doing volunteering, but in fact, there's many ways of doing it. And different ways of doing volunteering have different impacts and different way, different ways of providing solutions to certain problems. So, so what different ways of volunteering did you see? So, of course, there's that uh, service delivery model where you have an NGO providing um, services to a certain organization. There's um, activism. So I think this is one thing that we do not really associate volunteering with. So there's this even kind of more popular way of looking at volunteering, that volunteering is maintaining the status quo, but social activism would change the status quo. But I think they could be one and the same. A lot of the social activism platforms now are being run by volunteers, being led by volunteers. And there is a potential for volunteers to actually change things at a systemic level. You also have um, campaigning. You also have mutual aid groups. 
which again much more embedded into the communities. You have um, in the in in Iloilo City, we have a group of people who have lupus who gather together to 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 fund themselves and to to give themselves a space to talk about their issues and their problems. So again, this is another way of of doing volunteering, which is different from kind of more mainstream ones. Our response to the the pandemic at the moment, we have at one level the government, everyone needs to volunteer and we'll register you and run an official program. And then actually you have all the other forms of just helping that's happening on the community level through social media, etc. You're saying so that's not just not getting recognised by policymakers. So there's 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 the question of is it being recognised, right? Mm -hmm. There's another question, a policy question, which is what sort of impact do these different forms of volunteering would produce? Because different ways of doing volunteering would have different impacts. But there's also this question, and this is a much more critical question, which is how are dominant agenda co-opting smaller ones? So for instance, kind of this more formal way of doing volunteering, is there is there um, a capacity of those kind of more dominant ways of doing volunteering to actually close down some of these helping activities which are more community-based. You know, right. so sometimes we see that, okay, no, I, I'll volunteer in the NHS. I'm not going to volunteer anymore in this local group because I've already volunteered in the NHS. Professor Matt Beatty-Smith actually talks about this in, in an article. If state-led volunteering would co-opt some of these more informal ways of volunteering, whose legacy is it that's going to be continued on? Who is the owner of this initiative? And I think that's a very important thing to look at because we don't want this person-to-person helping activity to just get folded up and, and, and disappear. And that's almost as if you get a hierarchy of what is more valid. So as you were saying about the NHS, it's almost, oh, it's more valid to do the, the official volunteering mm. because the other stuff isn't getting recognised. And so it takes yeah. second place. And that hierarchy is coming from a particular discourse, mm-hmm. particular policy discourse. And I think the question that we have now as researchers is how, how can we unpack this discourse? How can we unpack the ways people talk about volunteering and people's way of framing who a volunteer is? And is there space to challenge them, to challenge this dominance? So having a dominant narrative must have implications for those who are doing that, what would be seen as the small community volunteering. What impact does that have on them? Yeah, so the other narrative that I've not really discussed at this point, so we have this kind of more deficit narrative of poor communities having less agency, etc. But you could also see that there's another counter narrative to that, which is this whole idea that, you know, when the poor volunteers, then they become heroes. They become people who are active agents of development. They're no longer just in one box. They are in another box. They are not just thankful receivers, but agile volunteers who could help make development happen. Now, my suggestion would be to, to have a more nuanced understanding of that that it's not a one-way transition, that even if they participate in these programs, there is there is still has to be this question of how can we support them better? And I think this is this goes across, not just in poor communities, but across the volunteer sector, of this trying to, to say that volunteers are heroes, and sometimes that masks the challenges that volunteers have. And we're now seeing that in the pandemic, we see volunteers who are being exposed to health hazards. We see volunteers who are, um, whose mental health and well-being are being affected. I see that in my research, um, HIV-AIDS volunteers who are being affected by their clients who are dying. So once we see that there are these particular issues on safety, security, and well-being, who then gets to support them? Who advocates for the volunteers? And what I realize is that contributory to that narrative is this whole idea that volunteering should be self-sacrificial, 
that volunteers should not benefit from volunteering, that you don't benefit. It has to be for the benefit of others. We even have this term in the Philippines of the bleeding heart syndrome of a volunteer, that you always give. I think we need to change that because we're now seeing that volunteers themselves have needs, very, very valid needs that policymakers and programs need to address. It's not just things like the emotional and mental health support, is it? I mean, there are some real practical needs that volunteers would have, such as being able to earn money, having the capacity to, in terms of logistics, you know, there are other needs that that, that perhaps ignores. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's this very little recognition that volunteering could actually be a cost for the volunteers. You know, some of the volunteers that I work with in the Philippines, at 17 years old, they are expected to give money to their family. And then they are expected to volunteer. What happens to their money for transportation? What happens to their food? What happens to that time that they were supposed to be spending for income generating activities, but they do it for volunteering? Now, these are important things to look at because now what we're trying to do or what I'm trying to do with my research is I'm trying to link uh, volunteering with a wider development ecosystem with this wider context within which these volunteers operate with. So it's not anymore, and this is what ethnography allows us to do, right? It's not anymore looking at volunteers as people in an organization, but they are people who operate in other spaces. And once you try to see how they operate in other spaces, then you see that that, that some of these issues are more nuanced, that some of these issues are more challenging. And I think that's, that's an important perspective change for policymakers as well. So you, you, you talk about these two almost separate narratives of top-down dominant discourse deficit model, and then you have the helping heroes grassroots stuff. But there is a meeting, there could be a meeting of the two where the top-down existing organisations help support and acknowledge the grassroots stuff. So you don't have to have an either or of those models, they would be better brought together. Yeah, precisely. And I don't think that they, that these models are mutually exclusive. They could coexist in a particular development program. And I think there are methods, planning methods and development planning methods that we can use to be able to bring some of these voices into kind of more formal ways of doing development or doing development work. So we talked about earlier about participation. This whole idea of participatory development is being such a very strong narrative now and kind of counter narrative to that top down approach that now participation is a way for people who are at the margins to be at the center of development programs. But then again, we also have to look at that in in a very critical way because we're assuming that everyone wants to participate, that everyone has the capacity to participate. We have to ask questions like, what kind of participation? Is it tokenistic? Is it just attendance? Um, um, Are the participants able to change some of these policies or some of these programs that you're um, asking them to participate into? Who participates? Who are we excluding? A lot of these questions are really complicated, which I think this podcast is not able to answer. But I think there is that there is that narrative. And that, it has been going for a long time, since the 1980s, of kind of this participatory development. And how can that be a tool for, for bringing people uh, together and giving them voice? But it, but it sounds like if you go back to uh, ethnography, actually, there's, there's almost a bit of needing to do that if you're an organisation looking to work with local communities. Actually go and find out what's going on in the local communities, talk to different people, find people who are doing things, how they're doing things, so that you can really understand and build a programme with people as opposed to deliver one to them. That's right. As I, as I was saying earlier, that ethnographic question of what is going on, it's not only an academic exercise. It is also a policy and practice exercise that could be done in a participatory way. You go to the community and try to understand what's going on. 
even in the perspective of the community members themselves. Now, there are tools to do that. There are different mapping tools and community appraisal tools, participatory ones that are able to do that. Let me just revise a little bit what I said about participation as a method. I also think that participation is an ethos. It's more of a value that you have to believe in. If you want to make your development programs participatory, you have to believe in participation. You have to believe that people in these communities have something to say. You have to believe that these people have different literacies, different knowledge systems that may be different from yours, that may not be valued from where you came from, but they exist. Mm. You have to believe in that. Otherwise, it will all just be tokenistic, I think. It will all just be methodical. What kind of literacies are you talking about there in terms of the different literacies? I, I assume there is a almost hegemonic literacy of how to work in a bureaucracy and how to get the best out of a bureaucracy that comes with the top-down model. What are the other literacies then? I mean, the, the way I view literacy and learning in this particular in this particular research, uh, I view them both as social practices. So I'm not I'm less concerned about reading and writing per se. But how do people engage with literacy as part of their everyday life, as part of their everyday practices in the organization? And this is what I found out, um, that failure to engage with these bureaucratic processes and bureaucratic texts, for instance, the forms, the letters that we are all familiar with, you know, when you get a form that does not mean anything and it's also realistic, <laughs> there are volunteers who are trying to grasp this and trying to engage with it in a very productive manner, but it's not all the time possible. Right. Because these are texts that you cannot speak against because they are very uh, monolithic. You know, they come to you and they have a particular um, instruction. What I found out in my research is that failure to engage with bureaucratic literacies has the tendency to be um, divisive. So literacy is not always a good thing if you're unable to to engage with it. It has the capacity to make uh, communities unequal and to create and maintain power relationships or power inequalities within the community. So you're saying in terms of the divisiveness, those in the communities that have the literacy and the ability to engage in those processes are the ones that become more valued within the volunteering ecosystem. And those that can't engage with those dominant literacies, what happens to them? Based on my research, well, in, in, in the Informal Settlers Association, a lot of those who are not able to in, in, engage with bureaucratic texts were kicked out of the organization. So these are kind of informally settling families who are supposed to be there, who are supposed to be at the center of this particular program. They have now been defaulted from the organization and they were replaced quite naturally and quite um, organically by lawyers. And I saw that with my own eyes and I've experienced that of, of some of them not attending meetings. And then all of a sudden I see these lawyers with big cars and, and teachers and people who are working in the government now already part of a land tenure program that was supposedly for informal settlers, for people who do not have jobs and do not have land titles. And, and I'm not saying that it's only because they were not able to, to engage with this literacy practices. Some of it is also about money and finances. But I think literacy practices and this failure to engage with bureaucratic text had a very strong role to play where there was this change in the composition in the organization. So it's almost like beware of the passive takeover. It's uh, the stealth takeover, isn't it? And so how how could you help practitioners, policymakers overcome that so that we maintain the focus on that that community activism? Right. So, I mean, there's this there's this thing, right, where you can say, no, let me battle the bureaucracy head on. 
let me change everything in this bureaucracy. And and some of the volunteers that I spoke with, they had this kind of narrative also saying that, you know, I need to kind of, this is not right. They recognize that this is not right. This is unfair for us, etc. But there's also that sense of paralysis where, well, you can't really do anything because you'll just lose because this is kind of this animal that you cannot really tame and you cannot really fight against. So for me, the question is, and, and it, this is one of the things that I'm asking in my research, if we now recognize that bureaucracy is complicated, that bureaucratic text is difficult to engage with, then who takes on the role of the educator? Who takes on the role of a teacher? Now, in literacy research, in, in new literacy studies research, there's this thing called literacy mediation, where literacy resources is not only assigned to one person. So it's a community resource. And I saw this in my research. Right. So if they're not able to read, for instance, a particular text from the government, they would ask one of their sons who is going to university to read it and explain it to them. OK, so the question is, as policymakers and as program practitioners, can we put this support kind of more institutionally if we recognize that it's difficult for people and it causes inequalities if they are not able to engage in bureaucratic texts? Can we then step back and look at our programs and ask, OK, can I put this support here? Can I put this support of a mediation much more formally within my program? I think that's kind of the policy question. What you're saying there also has implications for how that mediation gets done and who by and being wary of other power bases then being built up because you're the, the mediator. It's going to take the right person with the right values for that community to be able to, to mediate if organisations are looking to do that. Yeah, and it, it, there's also a time component to it. So it has to be the right person, but also at the right time. So kind of this ethnographic practice of just hanging out with a community. I think it's also a valuable thing to do for, for programs, for practitioners, to just hang out maybe um, with a community and try to see how they work as a community and understand people. A lot of these things, some of the things that I'm, that I'm talking about, like finding out what's going on or trying to understand what the community does, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of this take time, and I recognize that a lot of the development programs are now working on a project basis, that it's really difficult for you to be able to have the time to actually understand it, a particular community. Because again, we are in a development ecosystem where, you know, you always have to do it fast. You need to do fast results and you need to do, um, you, you are able to satisfy funding deliverables. So there are also challenges there. So I guess my question is, rather than saying that, oh, you should do this or you should do that, but try to find spaces within the development programs you have, the ones you're setting up or the ones you're currently doing, to be able to think about these things. Is there really time and space for you to be able to have that kind of more soft and slow focus on these communities and try to understand them a little bit better? And I suppose that that has implications in the long term, because as you said, sustainability is really important. And actually, if you can put that little bit of time early on into a program, that might mean the longevity of the program rather than just a short time specific project? That's a really good point. One of the projects that I was involved with, just, just um, to answer your point, Natasha, is this whole idea of international aid exits. With an international NGO here in London, we wanted to understand what happens when an INGO would leave a particular community because funding is over. So our case study was a volunteer organization in Ilo City that are doing work on tuberculosis. And you know what? Our main finding of that project is that when you build upon an existing system of volunteering rather than introducing a new one, then it becomes much more sustainable. So even when World Vision, and this is they are named in the report, when World Vision left, 
this small group of volunteers continued on to do their work. They were even able to fight together with World Vision to create a policy um, with the government to be able to fund them, to fund their program. So they are able to continue their work. And it comes, it started from that, I would say, that this, that World Vision started because of their long engagement with these communities, started to see what's happening already rather than trying to introduce a new way of, of tuberculosis monitoring. They, they, they actually just, you know, built upon what was already existing there. And that, that led to sustainability, definitely. Thanks, Chris. There were some really good points, interesting points in there. Um, and uh, as you know, I love listening to, to you talk about your research. So many <laughs> thanks for, for today. Um, and we wish you well for the future. And hopefully I know that you'll be finishing your thesis soon. <laughs> Thank you very much for the well wishes. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chris. Hello. So that was a really interesting discussion with Chris that I think has relevance for all manner of helpers and educators. Predominantly, I was struck by the great disservice we do to those we seek to help by disregarding their existing abilities. Now, Chris's research is about international development, but equally, there's a top-down tendency across the board to deliver rather than to enable. I'm reminded of the empty vessel approach to education that treats the learner as if they are completely devoid of existing knowledge. And in both education and support services, an approach like that is really wasteful. When we help people to build upon existing structures, we can help make something that could be standing long after we've gone, because those foundations are already embedded in the local community. And it's not to lessen the role of international non-government organisations, but it highlights how both narratives of the powerless poor and the helping heroes can stop us from seeing what the real needs are. And it can also show how tools such as adult literacy within local volunteer programmes can have a long-lasting and enabling effect. Chris is rightfully evangelical about his chosen method of ethnographic study. Now this is where the researcher immerses themselves within a community to better understand their way of life. So instead of just sending them questionnaires from afar, they are there seeing and knowing and living what is going on. And these types of study enable us to see what is already working and how we can help further. It's not dissimilar, to some of the concepts within community education and community social work, although such models aren't so common in the UK these days. But concepts of empowerment and inclusion are still bandied around, and if we're serious about them, then perhaps we all need to be doing a little bit more ethnographic practice. Or as Chris puts it, we need to find time to have a slower focus on the communities we are supporting, so that we can be of more help to them in their endeavours. So yeah, food for thoughts, and for practice.